Welcome, welcome, my lovies, to Faces of Postpartum, the podcast. I am Ariane Ode, writer, mom, photographer, advocate, and founder of the project. In this podcast, I feature postpartum stories from parents, informal discussions with friends about parenthood, and interviews with passionate providers and experts. Everything here is evidence-based, honest, and heartfelt. So stick around for unfiltered talks about the postpartum period. It's always an honor to have you here. And how do I pronounce your name? So um, it's actually my computer. That's just gonna give up. Um, it's Ariane in English, but you can say Ariane or Ariane or I've had everything and anything in between since I've moved here. So it's all good. <laughs> Where are you from? I'm from Montreal. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so where are you? Where are you right now? You're in New York. No, I'm in DC. Um, okay. But since I go oh, that's to right. Canada quite often, I just drive past New York. This is why I suggest. But now you're in Buffalo. I am. Yeah. Are you happy? I am. Yeah. I saw your I story am. about mowing the grass yesterday, and I was like, "This is my girl. <laughs> I do exactly the same thing." <laughs> I know. I don't know why it's become my job. Um, it's pretty easy, you know, I, I never did it growing up, you know, I don't know what, like where I missed that, you know, mark or whatever, but I think the electric mowers are just a little bit breezier. Yeah, do you enjoy it? Because I, I do kind of enjoy like the seeing the grass disappear. But... Oh, yeah. yeah it's it's like using that eraser tool in Photoshop. It's like very therapeutic. <laughs> I'm so and it drives me crazy that. if I like sit out there and it's just like, Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like when you want it to be cut, it's like when you want your hair cut, it's like, just yes. get it done, you know? It's just gotta happen. But then Can't we wait. have like older neighbors who are questioning the fact, questioning your husband masculinity because they're like, why is it you who are mowing the grass? I'm sure they are. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure my boomer neighbors are, uh, are really are questioning a lot of things, but you know, we have, we also have like a, a trans um, pride flag on our door. So they, they know what they're in for. Yeah. Yeah. We, a lot of people have the same here, like hate has no home here or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Is it closer to your family or his family? Mine. Yours. Yeah. I, I was away for um, 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so it felt like it was a nice, a nice time to come home and, and to do something different. And to just have the space, I think being a, you know, in the city, as you know, is, is cha it's challenging. It really is. And I felt like I wanted easy this year. So. Well, after this year, easy is, is good. It's yes. Pretty we good. could all use a little, little more easy. Absolutely. So the reason why I asked to talk to you, um, and, and now that I've kind of, I like to say did my research, but ultimately it's stalking on internet. Uh, sure. That's <laughs> uh, the best way to get it done. I know. Uh, I have like so many questions. So um, you are the producer, director, writer, and star <laughs> <laughs> of your documentary year Unfortunately, one. yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and do you want to describe a little bit first of your background, where you're coming from, and how did this documentary kind of was born? Yeah, sure. So I'm a filmmaker. I've been making movies since I was like 16 years old. 
I'm one of those weird people, Elizabeth Gilbert calls them jackhammer type creatives where I've always known what I wanted to do. I've always wanted to be, you know, in the film business telling stories. And um, my first documentary was called Dream Girl. Um, it came out in 2006 and we premiered it at Obama's White House. And it's a story about um, five women and their entrepreneurial journey from, you know, startups to, you know, third and fourth businesses. I wanted to show women a side of leadership. Um, I wanted to show them what it looks like to run their own businesses, to raise money, to create company culture, and to ultimately know that business is a real spiritual journey. You know, it's something that takes a lot of intuition and trust. Um, and so I had the great fortune of of making that film, um, of raising $100,000 on Kickstarter to produce it and, and to really be able to tour with the film afterwards for about probably a year and a half, two years. My job would be to go into different organizations like NASA and Goldman Sachs and Time. And I got to have these really intimate conversations about what does it look like to support women in leadership? How do we, you know, see the benefits and you know, how do we create, create company regulations to really support women? Um, and that was an incredible privilege to be able to do. And then kind of about a year and a half after my speaking tours kind of started to slow down, um, my husband and I decided it'd be a good time to get pregnant. I, I had always wanted to get pregnant once we'd gotten married, um, always wanted kids. And really I, it's interesting because I think motherhood seems so close in so many ways, right? You know, we we have our mother's narrative. We, we see stories of mothers all the time, but it's one of those things like entrepreneurship where until I think you really dip your toe in, you have no idea what it's gonna be like for you and what your journey is like. So when I became a mother, I became very, you know, I had overwhelming postpartum depression, but on top of that, I felt very, unseen by the media. I felt really lost. I felt like, you know, where is the Carrie Bradshaw of, you know, motherhood who's struggling with her identity and, and I really felt unseen. And so I started, you know, slowly documenting my journey and not really knowing what I was doing or where I was going, but, you know, little by little, it developed into a documentary about my first year of motherhood um, that's called Year One. Yeah, and it's interesting because at the beginning you say, maybe I didn't have what it takes to be a mom. And what did you think before becoming <laughs> a mom would be, it would take to be a mom? And we're not even talking about a good mom, but what did it take in your mind before becoming one to be a mom? Did you have expectations, et cetera, et cetera? And then how did that change? Of course, Ned, you're going to tell me it was tainted by, you know, your experience and, you know, mental illness and all these things. But before that, what did you think it would take to be a mom? Well, to be honest, I didn't realize how physically laborsome it is. I think that was the first thing that really stood out to me. Um, you know, having to breastfeed every two hours, um, even more so usually with my daughter, she just cluster fed pretty much 24 hours. She was always hungry. 
um, you know, living in Brooklyn on a third floor apartment where I'd have to carry my stroller up and down the stairs to leave the apartment. Um, it just felt like everything physically, like my body wasn't, I wish I had done some strength training. <laughs> like, I don't think my body was prepared for how physical it was going to be. Um, so that's the first thing that really, you know, came to mind in the beginning. And also, you know, I really struggled and I talk about this in the film as well with, with my loss of my career and my identity in that way, you know, being able to be an entrepreneur, to be a stay-at-home mom is an extreme privilege financially, obviously, but it put me in this weird situation where all of my eggs were in this motherhood basket. And I really felt like I was failing. Um, and it was really hard to find confidence when I wasn't do, I didn't feel like I was doing a good job. I was like, this, this sucks. I suck at this. You know, my life is over. It's always going to be like this. I think in the beginning, you're so overwhelmed with trying to find your bearings that it can feel really difficult to, to have like a solid sense of identity. Motherhood did a study that says it takes moms on average about six months to feel confident. Um, and I definitely identified with that. No, absolutely. And it's funny because you're talking about the you're talking about the first few weeks as survival, which is exactly that. Um, in your case and in my case too, um, it took us a long time to bond. Um, and it's interesting because there's this dichotomy between people are telling you or professionals are telling you this is normal, uh, you know, it will pass. And then there's also the opposite discourse that is often carried by either strangers or very close people <laughs> to us that is like, enjoy every minute and it's going to be amazing. And then in both ways, you feel you're failing. And do you think it's because we forget about it? Is it now that you've had, how old is your, is Jeannie? Jeannie is two and a half. Um, is it because it's biological? Is it an evolutionary thing? Uh, because we're too busy pushing through it afterwards and in it? Like, why do you think there's such a disconnect or it's so hard for veteran moms or mm. other people to connect with a newly postpartum person? Well, I think it's so complicated. I and mean, that's <clears throat> a great question because, you know, I think the people who are around you the most kind of during that time is your family, right? You know, I'm thinking about my mom specifically and, you know, the transformation she made becoming a grandmother was unlike anything I've ever seen before. I mean, she's, you know, a mother that loves hard, but when she met Ginny Rose for the first time, I mean, it was like she had levitated to like another planet, you know, her joy and her love and her immediate bond to my daughter was really intimidating and, um, you know, was really kind of hard to grapple while I felt like I was still getting my sea legs together. And so I think, you know, having a baby is, is a joyful thing. And I think people, you know, especially in our culture, we, we ask, how are you? We want you to say you're fine. We want to be able to say, enjoy every minute. You know, I think it's, I don't think it's mal intent, but I think it's surface intent. And I think it is worth noting or, you know, creating a better mantra for moms, you know, so that they do feel seen and supported because, you know, the polarity of everyone's joy in, in falling in love with the baby is that, you know, in my experience, I felt totally erased. You know, like people would come into my house, nobody would say hi to me. Like people go beeline for the baby. They want to hold the baby. You feel invisible. 
and I sometimes still feel like that, you know, and, and I think that that's tough when you're, when you're struggling, when you feel invisible, like all we want to do is feel seen, right? And so I think having better conversations where we can give, you know, mothers and fathers the space to feel discomfort, to grow into something. But I think you have to be a really um, emotionally evolved person to, to create that space for somebody. And I don't think, you know, the lady at the grocery store that says, enjoy every minute, you know, is trying to make you cry, no, you know, but it can, but it can, and it, it can be really infuriating. And to see the rate, uh, you know, I mean, this is my job, so maybe I'm a little biased, but this whole, I, I wasn't seen, I couldn't feel seen. I can't believe it's just our generation. So they must have gone through that too. So Definitely. to think, so it, did your mom go, I know it's a very personal question, so you don't have to go on record with that, but did your mom go through postpartum depression? She didn't know. She's never had any depression or anxiety in her life. Because sometimes it will do that too. It's like a way to heal their own journey as a new mom through becoming a grandmother. You know, I've heard mm. that before. Um, I could see that. And so they kind of push aside the part of themselves they don't want to see, which is the lost part or the crying in the shower, which I will never get over that scene. Um, who filmed that? Um, so I worked with one videographer for the entire film. Um, her name is Mary Perino, and she was my director of photography for my first documentary. And obviously that was a really intimate scene to film. Um, and it was, it was really beautiful, actually. She, we waited all day to film that scene. I knew I wanted to do something in the shower. I knew I wanted to kind of have this emotional release or I hoped to be able to cry on camera. I wasn't sure what we were gonna get. And um, she so beautiful and lovingly kind of led the whole process for me. And I think as a director, that's such a privilege to be able to kind of take a back seat you know, in the process and really just focus on my feelings, focus on, you know, what we wanted to get in that moment. And um, yeah, so she, she filmed me and she was like, let's just, let's have it be spontaneous. Let's not block it. Just go in there and be yourself and I will be here and you just do whatever you need to do, however long, it, you know, it's going to take. And it was such a bizarre feeling actually, because the minute I stepped in the shower, I started sobbing. And I think of trying to relive that moment, those dark days, it was almost transformative to kind of reshare it, to relive it and to release it. Um, Interesting. So it was not captured in the moment where it actually happened. It was kind of reenacted. Correct. Yes. But this is, a, this is even more, I don't want to say even more amazing because this is safe <laughs> to the initial emotion which was very distressing um but to go through that it's some sort of catharsis yes yes it was very therapeutic to relive it and and uh yeah and just to release it is really how i felt yeah and knowing that the shower and the bathroom is often a space where we go hide and process our emotions or the only place if we're lucky uh, that we're alone, it's mm -hmm. such a, you know, it's a powerful background to be in. You know, you could have been on your bed, but this is a shared space as opposed to the shower, which is usually in these moments spent alone. So that was very, uh, very interesting to see that. And then 
it was interesting to see the the continuity with later on i think when she's seven months and she's on the floor and you're trying to blow dry your hair and then mm -hmm. your husband comes in and tries to get her and then you're like no that's fine uh and that like pull and push between Attention. i really want to be left the fuck alone <laughs> and i need to take care of her because well because what well, in that moment specifically, Sal was getting ready to go to work. So some one of the things we really struggled with as new parents in the beginning is like figuring out the morning routine. Um, my daughter didn't sleep through the night until she was about a year and a half. So we never knew at night like how late we would be up or what time she would get up. It always just felt like such chaos in the morning. And that scene specifically is was a real conversation that we had of like, trying to get him out the door, him having 10 minutes to shower and get ready and leave and trying to kind of figure out who was gonna take care of the baby while we were both getting ready for the day. And I would say that was like something we struggled with constantly was, you know, really not having that morning routine, not really being able to like both get ready at the same time, you know, having the baby in the middle. And did you feel that because you were staying home, you didn't have the right kind of, your needs, couldn't be met first. Always, I, I always felt like he would get up in the morning and he would get ready. He would shower for work, he would do all these things. And then like, if there was time and I was lucky, I'd be able to pop in the shower too. And I think that really came because of the stress of the chaos in the morning. And I really felt like I had to, we had to continue to talk about and work out and say, okay, like I know I'm at home, but like I need to shower too. and it's so weird to feel like you have to raise your hand for those things sometimes. Um, but it was just kind of the, really the lack of preparation. It wasn't like we got up and he did a thing for an hour and I did a thing. It was like, he's got 20 minutes to get ready to get out the door. So it just felt like really nuts in the beginning. Yeah. And obviously, you know, he, he seems at least on screen, like a very involved parent and, when he holds her at her birthday and he says something like you're growing so fast or something and he gets very emotional it's it's actually a very sweet thing to see um but then he leaves and so i recognize myself i don't know how much you read about this project or about my own story but i landed in a psychiatric ward at around when my daughter was like five months old my first daughter um and so yes, I obviously recognize myself in, into what you were going through in this moment where he leaves mm. and I'm left behind. Right. I, I you, you, you portrayed it very well. And actually it's interesting because you're talking about having a career, you know, being ambitious and, and your movie Dream Girl is, is exactly that. You know, you're saying at the end, I have that leadership inside of me. I just need to surround myself with you know, powerful example. Um, and to find yourself in a position where you feel you're kind of reenacting traditional roles mm. just feels tough to me. Like it was half of the struggle. Like I couldn't realize I, I couldn't admit to myself that I had trapped myself literally in motherhood and mm. at the same time love my daughter. And it's, so much and it's interesting because to those who saw the film when you get out of the shower you hold jimmy and then you kiss her <laughs> you kiss her and you can like it has nothing to do with her 
Mm. No, it has nothing to do with this being. So this, your state of mind has nothing to do with her, but I just felt for you so hard, um, again, for that push and pull between the love we have for them and also who we are, who we were, who we are meant to be. Um, yeah, I think that scene um, is so powerful for a lot of reasons. And one of the things that I really loved about about kind of, you know, reenacting that scene is, is figuring out Ginny's role in it. Because I feel like so much of my emotional breakdowns happened when she was in the room. It's like, we don't get the space or the luxury of, you know, shutting the door and having a breakdown. If I'm going to cry in the shower, she's playing with the keys next to me. And I think I wanted that really to feel you know, serious of the commitment that we have to have as mothers, that it is this kind of, especially being a full-time caregiver, that it's this, you know, intricate thing that you are sharing space with them always. And to your point about the gender roles, it's, it's really interesting. You know, I was thinking about, um, Ginny has a dentist appointment and a doctor's appointment. And I was like, should I be delegating these? Like, I think I take on a lot of the extra mental load because as a stay-at-home mom, I feel like it's my job. You know, I'm ordering her shoes. I'm making sure she has summer clothes. Like I'm, you know, regulating and making sure that she's got everything she needs. But at the same time, you know, if I was a working parent, we would, I would hope we would share more of these responsibilities, you know, and it, it would behoove Sal to, to meet her doctors as, as, as we've just moved and to know how to drive there and to know where it is. So, you know, these are constant conversations that I'm having with him of trying to figure out what's the best way to parent. And I do think it's really difficult when you do, when one person is a full-time caregiver, you, you kind of naturally slip into that role of, of kind of handling everything when it comes to childcare. And that's, you know, it's difficult. Yeah. And considering that it's also very much proven that even if you guys would, or even if- I'd probably you know, still be, but- <laughs> probably, And this conversation needs to happen because, you know, for example, my therapist, everything that has to do with, um, you know, wellness, you know, care, it's her husband and for like emergencies, it's gonna be her. So, but this is a conversation you need to have because by default, the anticipation of care falls upon our shoulders. And, you know, you, you say like, I have kind of to, I have to navigate this world as if I was not carrying on my shoulders the world of somebody else, you know, and it's a very, it's a strange question because who knows, but I wonder why we don't think about going into motherhood, so the postpartum period or as walking next to someone, you know, or like guiding them, but I guess the first few weeks and few months and first year, it's just so their life is between our hands and like after that how do you detach yourself from that i guess and it it swallows everything it just swallows everything so it's when i was looking at you and i was like is she bored like when jenny is on her play mat and i'm like yes I, I, <laughs> I, I was looking at you and i was like yeah that was me i was like i was reading all these things about how i, I was supposed to entertain my baby and you know like to make sure her brain develops and I was like I'm bored out of my mind like what mm. is this uh, I wrote a piece about that actually on my blog um you know I sometimes share these motherhood musings when they they come to me and I wrote a whole piece about how motherhood is boring 
and about how being a stay-at-home mom is boring. And I think we have this expectation again that, you know, every moment, enjoy every moment. Um, and it's okay that nothing is happening. You know, it's okay that there's, there are these moments of pause or that it's not stimulating or exciting. I think, again, we have to reframe the pressure that we put on parents to have to be these, you know, crazy superheroes. Um, you know, there's also another article I read about like parents microdosing because they felt so bored um, that they were doing anything to kind of stimulate their minds and make the process interesting. And it's like, it doesn't have to be interesting all the time. Let it be. I feel like I so much of parenthood is like going from, you know, just kind of like the mundane process to like, you know, seeing them walk for the first time and, and having it change your entire life. Like it, that's what it is. It's mundane and then it's life changing. And, you know, again, we have to leave space for it to just be and, and to have that be okay. But an inter another interesting thing too, and it's interesting because you filmed it, is at some point you're like asking yourself, should I put a onesie on? Is she going to be cold? Is she going to be warm? And I know there's technically someone in the room, but these questions we ask ourselves out loud all the time. Mm -hmm. And for you to film that, and my, when I saw that, my question was, motherhood was never meant to be, to be so lonely. Like, mm you know, to have people around to witness us witnessing that in our children or being bored together. Or I think about my cousin, for example, her mom is always around and for the better and worse, but yeah. it works for them. And she's like, sometimes I feel I'm in a relationship with my mom. And I was like, no, I think it's actually meant to be like that, <laughs> you know, right. You have an extra pair of hand to ask questions. Is it too warm for a onesie or is it too, you know, <laughs> be okay. Right. And I thought that was such a good, I felt such a relief to have that captured on screen because I was like, yes, this is it. You know, I just not only would have wished to have someone to ask those questions to, but also mm -hmm. someone to witness me trying to figure it out and tell me it's gonna be okay. You know? Yeah, I feel like the first time I really felt like a mother was when my aunt or my aunt, my cousin Megan came to visit me. And I think it was, she's a little bit older than me and she has two boys. And I think Ginny was like two months, maybe three. She was so, so little, she was probably even younger. And just having her like bear witness to my motherhood experience somehow made me feel more like a woman, like a part of this maternal family, a part of this lineage. And, you know, I've always kind of viewed her as an older sister. I don't have any sisters. And, you know, she so kindly said, you know, it's going to get better every day. And, you know, isn't this really hard? And don't you remember this? And, you know, was so generous with kind of the highs and the lows. And I really felt like that kind of shifted the energy of, of knowing maybe what I was missing in that, you know, of having people be really close to their families and really having their experiences be validated yeah, just, it was such a beautiful, a beautiful memory. And I feel like it's, it's a, it's a big part of my motherhood story. Did you feel the same kind of comfort in the mother circles that you've hosted or that you participated in? Absolutely. You know, I think that was a big part of my craving 
um, community and, and real conversations. And I was really lucky to be part of the Park Slope Parents. So I had, you know, a gorgeous group of I think it's maybe like 25 women who were giving birth at the same time and who, you know, I could ask questions to. But one of the crazy things is, you know, I felt like, you know, we'd go to these coffee shops on Monday mornings and there'd be like 15 women and we, you know, I breastfed for the first time in public, like in this circle, like with other mothers showing me how to do it. And I remember feeling so lucky and so seen. And then they all went back to work and there were like, you know, two of us left. And, you know, it, it, I think it was especially lonely to be a stay-at-home mom in Brooklyn um, when there are not a lot of us. And, you know, that really pushed me to continue to seek deeper versions of, of community. And when I was diagnosed with postpartum depression, I was able to find a group that was specifically centered around that. And that allowed me to, to really heal and to really hear from other women and to feel like I wasn't alone and to offer a really great sense of community. You know, women would say things in the room that I'd be too afraid to say, and we'd be able to talk about them. And one of the other really beautiful things about that group is my, the woman who ran it, Melissa, who's my therapist in the film, you know, she really fostered this kind of encouragement. So like if I said something negative about, you know, what I did that day or my thoughts, you know, kind of before she would jump in, another woman in the group would say like, I think you're doing your best and I think you're doing a good job. Like there was such a supportive nature to it um, that I thought was incredible and, and really enriching and, and healing as well. It's funny because I think what your movie does and also what you're kind of saying is that by carrying our stories together, as, as someone says, um, we kind of break the, I know it's not a word, but unilateralness of mm -hmm. motherhood or like the way it's supposed to be or like the walls we built around um, what motherhood still kind of is supposed to be, you know, like the doing it all, um, career and all these things. It's just a variation on the same team, which is let women do it all on their own and, you know, then tell them they don't have the right to fail. And that's, at the end, I was like, let me just look into it because I want to get it right. We, we have, I, I don't know if you, you remember a couple of years ago, there was this, this trend about the art of failure in like mm -hmm. uh, Silicon Valley, and all these white dudes saying like, you gotta fail and failure is beautiful. And I kind of wondered that by stripping, kind of stripping that from women and new moms and you know, it's not that we're failing, but the art of not always being at the top of our game, like this pressure, this constant pressure of always needing to be at the top of our game. That is a, again, a push and pull specifically when you're ambitious, which you can't really say if you're a mom. Um, or you want a career and all these things like the word failure comes back quite often in, in the movie. And I wonder if the way you interpret it changed or how it evolved throughout the years. Well, it's, it's complicated because, you know, even as you were talking about the guys from Silicon Valley, you know, white men are allowed to fail mm -hmm. and they fail up. Um, you know, women are often in those situations only given one shot. You know, and I think, 
Right. And I think, you know, so to kind of have that be our umbrella statement of failures, I feel like isn't realistic, you know, especially, you know, to women and women of color, you know, in any, you know, group that's struggling and oppressed. And, you know, for motherhood, it's, I feel like the main, you know, mantra that I want people to take away from the film is to know that motherhood evolves that the process evolves, that your child evolves, and that it doesn't have to be this thing, you know, this dress that fits you perfectly the first time you put it on. You know, I think it's something you have to grow into. You might have to learn how to fall in love with your baby. You might not, you might not be love at first sight. And, you know, I think again, giving women permission to feel the difficult, to feel the pain, you know, and, and to take away this, this immense pressure of having to be, you know, I always think about the, the martyred mother, like that's the narrative I'm always trying to fight with is, Which you know, of being a martyr, of, oh, of taking yes. it all on yourself yes. and putting it all on your shoulders and huffing and puffing about it and, you know, trying to really communicate when I need something and when I need help. But that's an image that we see all the time in the media. You know, we, we see women doing it all, all the time. And, and I think a lot of the reason for that is because our media is written and produced by men who, who want women in these spaces to thrive and, and to take care of the child support for them. I mean, of course, but yeah, we, to leave space for the complicated, for the nuanced. And I think, you know, you asked before, did women feel this way, you know, in previous generations? And I absolutely think the answer is yes. I just think we are lucky to be in a time for better or worse where, you know, we're seeing everybody's stuff all the time. You know, we're hearing about everybody's stories and, but I think it's, it's powerful too, to be able to own and, and talk about my, my aunt actually reached out to me after she watched the film and she was like, you know, I never had postpartum depression, but I had, I definitely had depression, you know, when my son was like three or four and it was so meaningful to have somebody in my family kind of step up and, and claim their mental health and talk about it. And, you know, when we share our stories, we absolutely give permission for others to do the same. Just like the mothers in your group that were saying things you would have never thought. For sure. You would say out loud. And it's interesting because we kind of also have on the other end of the spectrum, this internalized hatred for everything that is related to motherhood you know like mm. uh, the, the snacks and um, minivan which i do both and uh, you know like this typical of course now we're talking well they're about not taken seriously they're not taken seriously so, even now i get people who say oh you're just a stay-at-home mom like what do you do all day isn't that boring or you know like is it real work and you know i would today, I, I would love to have somebody work from five in the morning to you know four four a.m and and not get paid and tell me you know how easy it is i mean it's it's crazy it is crazy and it, interestingly enough there's a woman i interviewed um she's a professional she has her own business and her husband does too and recently she posted, and of course she's a woman of means and privilege, and she's also a huge advocate, and she's very loud in, in how she deconstruct these roles. And she posted a um, job offer from five to nine to 
make breakfast, clean the breakfast, do laundry. And so basically mm. every single thing that we do, but just don't really take into consideration. <laughs> and she was like, so this is paid $20 a, a, um, an hour and we need help because my husband and I are gonna kill each other. And I'm putting it out there because I'm tired of this kind of work not being recognized mm -hmm. and I need help. Can someone help? And I was like, holy moly. And this is aside from babysitting or like nannies it's just a complete different job and i was like oh. by categorizing it she kind of created an awareness on this is not invisible work or it shouldn't be invisible yes. work this yeah. is work that someone could be paid 20 dollars an hour to do um also i love the idea of normalizing um and I think LinkedIn just did this where they allowed you to put yes. you're a stay-at-home parent or full-time caregiver as you know your occupation um, normalizing women leaving the workforce men leaving the workforce taking a year off going back um, you know figuring figuring it out I think you know one of the more inspiring stories now to me in Dreamgirl was Joanne Wilson, who's this um, incredible millionaire investor. And she talks about being a stay-at-home mom for three years. And then she was like, when I was done, I was done. And I went back to work and I ran this, you know, multi-million corporation and, um, you know, it changed her family's life financially. And I think like allowing women the space to go in and out or parents to go in and out of the workforce, especially, you know, I feel like if COVID has taught us anything, it's that you know, sometimes as a family, you need to readjust and you need to refigure it out. I mean, I definitely, you know, was applying for jobs, was thought I would be in an office last year and then the world shut down and, you know, we moved and we made the decision, okay, I'm going to stay home until we, until this thing is over and it never has ended. So <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. process. It is definitely a process, completely unrelated questions. You drop your kid at daycare, which cried so hard um, <laughs> so hard okay so two things first off by giving the space you know like just a space to be visible and all these things i think what we are also teaching new parent is that i don't know if you felt like that on your you know first couple of weeks months postpartum is that i felt the time shrank suddenly mm -hmm. i was like in a constant state of emergency like if i'm not able to get out of here as fast as possible i'm gonna die here mm -hmm. and that morning that changed everything where Jeannie took a unexpectedly long nap and mm -hmm. then you felt you know the suicidal ideation and all these things um I felt it too me it was in the middle of the night between our bedroom and the bathroom and I just mm -hmm. laid on the floor and I was like I cannot do this anymore this is just again it has nothing to do with her right but it hurts so much and mm -hmm. it's never gonna end yeah and so i think that's what's interesting in your in your in your film and also you know in, in the discussion we're having is that time is expensive at some point it's not you're not going to feel the, like you're in a state of emergency mm. at all time absolutely um, and you know you're talking about a path and the path of compassion and are you still on that path of healing from this depression or because I know it can take a lot of time and people want us to get over it quickly, specifically mm -hmm. our insurance companies. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, how how did you process that that path or the reinvestment of time as something that is expensive and maybe allow yourself to dream again? 
Yeah. Well, I, I want to go back to something you said about having that moment where you just feel, you know, totally overwhelmed. And, um, you know, in the film, I talk about having a suicidal ideations and, and feeling that moment of like, I can't do this anymore, of feeling like maybe somebody else would be better suited to take care of my daughter, of really just feeling you know, I went from having those suicidal thoughts to really considering, okay, do I need to do something here? And, you know, thankfully I, in that moment, reached out to my partner, Sal, and he came home from work right away. And I was able to be painfully honest about how I was feeling and ask for help. And I think, you know, oftentimes with, you know, something as intimate as postpartum depression or anxiety or OCD psychosis, you know, it's really painful to share with the ones that we love how we're feeling. Um, and in fact, I've spoken to a lot of women who say that their, you know, partners and family members are not the best line of defense. You know, they're not trained therapists. They don't know what this experience is. They can often say the wrong things. Um, and that being said, to know that there is help out there that is trained in postpartum experiences. I wouldn't even go to a regular therapist. I always tell people to find somebody who's trained specifically um, so they aren't overlooked and, um, and not taken care of. But I feel like in order for you to feel better, to get out of that space, to have it pass, you have to ask for help. You have to choose your mental health. You have to choose your life. You have to choose you know, whatever this next thing is gonna be and you have to fight it. And so that was the only way that I was able to get better is by really mentally deciding, okay, I don't wanna feel like this anymore. And this isn't something I can take on by myself. And, you know, here are the things that I'm gonna do to, to get better. And for me, you know, that was through a mother circle of other women, as we spoke about, who had PMADs of some kind led by a trained therapist. And I also saw in addition to that, a one-on-one -on -one counselor to help me process. And, you know, I also made this pact with myself. This is kind of a, a random side note. I was like, you know, anytime I'm feeling really low or depressed, I'm going to go outside, you know, rain or shine or snow. I have to get out of the apartment. You know, part of that was, I was like, I know I can't hurt myself <laughs> if I'm, if I'm out of here, you know, I don't want to be in this I don't want to feel like the walls are closing in on me, um, you know, being outside, being in that fresh air, you know, you know, being a, a ghost in Brooklyn as I walked around the streets, it, it, even that helped me feel some kind of sense of, of connection to a community. But yeah, absolutely. If people are feeling, you know, not good and they, they know they're not good, you know, PMADS can last for two to three years and it, it needs to be addressed. It is totally treatable, but you need the right kind of help. Did you ever consider medication in this path? I, so I've had depression, um, you know, since I was uh, in high school and I have been on medication before and um, it made my suicidal ideations worse. Um, so I knew for me that that I didn't want to chance that this time. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't do medication. And also um, through my depression, I know that talk therapy is, is, is really powerful for me. Um, I've even done reflexology at times and found that to be very helpful as well. So I kind of knew that those were good options for me. And then, you know, my therapist kind of monitored me and, um, and didn't suggest anything. So that wasn't a path I went down. Although if it were, if it, you know, 
was absolutely, you know, I think you have to do anything you can to feel better because to answer your original question, you know, I, I do feel better now and I do feel on the other side of it. And, you know, being able to look back, you know, what I experienced was absolute hell. And I would never wish that on anybody. And to know that, you know, that experience wasn't normal, that it was so painful, but you really, you can't even, I have a friend who's experiencing right, it right now. And I'm like, you just, you have to work on survival and, and, and finding your help. And you cannot judge your motherhood right now. You know, you can't hold yourself to any kind of standard in, in any sense, because what you're going through is a storm. You know, you're not going to be able to feel the joy and the, the lightness that comes from getting better until you are better and just throw that out the, out the door, you know, get it off the table and just get help and find that compassion for yourself while you're, while you're going through it. Because of course it's, it's, it's a lot. And it's interesting because at some point someone mentions karma and that Mm. if I go through that right now, tomorrow has to be better. And one of the things I've struggled a lot with my husband because he wanted me to get better so badly mm. is that when he would say, well, today can, tomorrow can only be better. But then I think what a lot of also women struggle with is that what happens when tomorrow is not better, you know, right. and to give yourself grace that again, time is expensive. You will get better, but it doesn't have to happen, you know, within a time, a set time frame, or you're not a guideline, you're not an algorithm, you're not, you know, you're not follow, you're following your own path. And then only after that, you can maybe forgive yourself, or be compassionate towards yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, you know, I think, you know, my postpartum depression lasted for an entire year, like Jenny's first whole year, I felt that cloud. Um, and then it slowly started to lift. Um, you know, after her first birthday. But, you know, I think as somebody who's had depression her whole life, you know, I think it'd be totally unrealistic to say that I'm, you know, I'm never going to experience it again. And I'm just going to walk joyfully through the world. I think, you know, when my journey has taught me now is, you know, figuring out, you know, how to continue to heal, how to find support when I need it, you know, uh, I'm quoting a lot of Elizabeth Gilbert today, but, um, you know, she has this great, yeah, she has this great analogy about how, you know, you shouldn't let fear drive the car, you know, creatively, you know, it can sit in the back seat, it can't touch the radio. And that's how I feel about my depression. You know, some days it's going to show up and how do I communicate with it? And how do I, you know, work with it? And how do I say, okay, I, I acknowledge you're here. I'm going to ask for help, but listen, like you're not in charge. And I think the other thing that was really life-changing for me in my, in my healing process is, is also the idea that like, I am not my depression. I am not my thoughts. And I have, you know, have these things that pop up sometimes, you know, even still now. And I go, that's not me. You know, that's not my, I'm not associating with that. Like, I I feel like also as humans, you know, we carry the trauma of generations before us, you know, we carry the narratives and the stories. And I think it's okay to, to have these things come up, but to acknowledge, like, is that really me? Is that really how I feel? Yeah, to you know, train yourself and... to question that is, is good. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. And and to know that it's funny because it's transformative and also you go back to were you surprised when I'm thinking about specifically I can't I can't finish my sentence apparently. I was 
so um, moved when you drop off your daughter at daycare and then there's a scene where you just laugh with your husband and you sit down and you eat a piece of pizza or mm -hmm. were you surprised when that happened like just like oh I made I made it like we're doing this how did you you know you felt yeah, on the I mean, other side yeah I, I'm glad that that feels like it shows because I definitely think there was a lightness to that moment and there's so much anxiety right about I, I say in the film like should I start sobbing now should I stop there like there's so much stress about the first daycare drop-off especially yeah and um I think that scene is so nice because I think you remember that Sal and I are partners Mm -hmm. And that there's a world that exists that was before Ginny, that'll be after Ginny, where him and I are the foundation of our family. And I think there's such a, you know, kind of peaceful lightness to that scene of just having a slice of pizza, you know, with your partner that I, that I really love. And yeah, I, I think the end of the film is so nice because it's the first time we see me without Ginny, mm -hmm. um, which also adds a lot of lightness and you know, it's the first time you see me alone in the coffee shop. And it just, it kind of, it's like, wow, like, you know, I think we forget that there's this other dimension, that there's this other, you know, space that's for, that's just for us and that yeah. that's okay. And I love how you, you were all black because for me, it's like my armor. Like when mm. I dress all black and I just go to work, it's like, I mean, business. And I was yeah. <laughs> I know Diana, my writing partner, says that's like my Steve Jobs outfit because I'm wearing that little black turtleneck. Yeah, I don't know. It makes me feel safe. <laughs> this is super funny. Um, I'm going to finish the interview on, on, I don't know if it's a question or more like an observation, but at the beginning of Dream Girl, there's this quote from Gloria Steinem that mm. says, dreaming after all is a form of planning. And so I had to think really hard about this because I really wanted to link that to what I had just watched, which was year one. And mm. becoming a mom is the complete opposite of planning. And I guess I questioned myself. I was like, how do you reconciliate, reconcile, sorry, um, with the, the idea of motherhood and hope and what it means to dream? And ultimately, I came back to this idea of failure is that there's no, you know, the, the woman at the end, and I'm forgetting her name, so I'm sorry. She says, to dream is not easy, to dream is scary, but it doesn't mean that you don't do it. I think the missing piece, or I guess what you're kind of unveiling with this movie is that motherhood is scary. Motherhood is not easy. And this mm -hmm. is why it allows us to still be able to be hopeful and scared and depressed and confused and also in love and it's like this variation of emotions that you uncovered with that movie that I, I felt was added kind of a layer to this quote where you know it's just yes it's planning and it's also <laughs> all these incredibly complicated and you know difficult things um Ariane, I love that you linked that Gloria Steinem quote because I feel like that's such a feminist mantra because, you know, and I can think a million of a million ways in which it applies to motherhood from, you know, wanting paid parental leave, you know, mm -hmm. to be standard, you know, to support with childcare, you know, to protecting black maternal health. I mean, I think oftentimes we have to dream these things 
Um, and they have to kind of start out as this really, you know, loose, um, exciting, inspiring idea before it can become a plan. And I think especially for mothers, you know, when I think about the act of dreaming, you know, it's such an intimate and spiritual and personal experience, right? It's something you're doing, could be for others, it could be for yourself, but it has to come from within. And I think as mothers, I mean, the dream really, you know, is to create that space where we can let whatever we have to have come out. And I think, you know, year one is my expression of that. It is my, you know, dream to create again, to work again, to produce something, um, to share a story that I think is unheard. So, you know, I think it's a beautiful, you know, way to end our conversation and to kind of bring it full circle because, you know, year one is, as a mother, is my absolute dream to have produced and made. And what are your dreams right now? <laughs> um, In wood and beyond. Yeah, I mean, I, gosh, I'm, I feel like I'm in that place on the lily pad where I'm like trying to receive and trying to be open. And, um, you know, I think ultimately I want to keep working and I want to keep creating and producing and I want to keep telling stories. So I feel like I'm kind of in that, you know, space where I'm just trying to see what comes and see what happens and, you know, keep chasing my little girl around and, mm and all those things. But I, I am very grateful that um, Ginny started daycare again, um, <laughs> just this month. Um, with the launch of the film, we, we put her in part-time, which has been um, exceptional and um, such a joy to, to be able to continue to create space for myself to, to make these dreams happen. Yeah, well, I hope they do because your voice is uh, pretty phenomenal and uh, I, wanna, I wanna hear and see, watch more of the things you dream of. Thank, thank you so much. And thank you so much for this conversation. That was really nice. Thank you so much for listening to Faces of Postpartum, the podcast. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and register on Apple Podcast or anywhere you listen to us. If you have any show ideas or comments, you can reach us at podcast at facesofpostpartum.com. We also have an Instagram at facesofpostpartum. And we always love to hear from you. See you soon.